Hello. Welcome to the legends of King Arthur and his knights. Chapter 50. Checkmate. Two great armies collided with such violence that the noise could be heard for miles. Arthur's twenty battalions and Mordred's thirty piled into battle with fury and menace, each side soldiers intent on killing every man in the enemy's lines. Only one battalion in each army held back. Arthur and Sir Mordred watched the carnage unfold, each waiting for the right moment to enter the fray themselves, each leader intent on killing the other. The thunderous roar of the battle could be heard for miles. At the heart of the fighting, the din was so loud that nobody could hear anything except the clash of weapon against armour and the piercing screams of the dying. In the morning, the men were rested and full of energy, and they fought with vigour. They swung and thrust their weapons as if they would never tire. As lunchtime approached and then came and went, they grew more weary. As the afternoon wore on, the combatants' will to fight remained high, but their bodies were weakening. The fighting was just as brutal and deadly, and the rate of death increased, as men became almost too tired to defend themselves. The leaders of the battalions began to fall. King Caradoc was struck down, followed by King Yon and the King of Ireland. Two battalions remained away from the bloody raging turmoil. King Arthur and Sir Mordred looked on as their armies were cut down in front of them. Over half the men on each side lay dead or dying on the ground, and both men knew it was time to write the last chapter. It was Mordred who struck first. Struggling to make himself heard over the tumult, he ordered 400 of his men to ride round the back of King Arthur's battalion and attack from the rear. Then he ordered the rest of his men to charge. King Arthur's men raised their lances and prepared themselves for battle. Around them, the rest of the two armies continued to slaughter each other, over 10,000 men dying every hour. King Arthur looked at his men. He counted 72 knights of the round table still standing. A little bit of hope rose inside him. 72 of his finest men were still alive and that gave him a chance. An hour or so later, there were just three. His men fought Mordred's with such intensity that the insane death of battle increased in tempo. Arthur himself killed over a hundred men. Mordred killed thirty and then another thirty and then thirty more. He killed Sir Galantin and many more of his former comrades. The bloodlust and will to win coursed through him and spurred him on to greater effort. King Arthur paused and looked around. At that moment he knew that the fellowship of the round table was at an end. He called his three remaining knights to him. Sir Lucan the butler was wounded in the side. His brother Sir Bedivere looked undamaged but was so exhausted he could hardly sit on his horse. Sir Sagramore held one arm over his stomach trying to stop the blood coming out while he tried to lift his sword with the other. Around them the remainder of each army, just a few thousand men, continued to hack lumps out of each other. More and more and yet more fell dead to the ground. Mordred noticed Arthur and his three knights. He galloped over and swung his sword at Sir Sagramore. Arthur could only watch as the knight's head left its owner's body, sailed through the air and landed at the feet of his horse. Mordred charged back into the thick of the battle, as did Arthur and his two surviving fellows. On they fought until the skies darkened. Arthur was vaguely aware that the noise was dying down and the thunder of horses' hooves had stopped. Pretty soon, the only sword he could hear was his own as it robbed his last opponent of life. When he looked up, he could see no more fighting. 
The only remaining sounds were the moans of the dying. Not a night was left. A few yards away from him, Sir Bedivere sat tending his brother. Sir Lucan looked to have been mortally wounded, but he clung on to life as Bedivere staunched his wounds. As Arthur gazed out over the battlefield, he could only see one other man still upright. Sir Mordred of Orkney stood, leaning on his sword, a half-smile visible on his unhelmeted head. "'Give me that spear,' said Arthur to Sir Lucan. "'I've seen the traitor that's brought us to this, and I will kill him, here and now.' "'Leave him,' urged Lucan. "'Remember your dream. Remember the spirit of Sir Gawain. "'He urged you not to fight and not to kill Mordred. "'If you leave him alive, then this wicked day of destiny will pass, and we can rebuild.' But Arthur wouldn't listen. Grabbing the spear, he ran towards his nephew. Traitor, raged Arthur as he approached Mordred. Now the time of your death has come. Mordred drew his sword and waited. He was a very fine warrior and he was convinced he could beat Arthur easily. He raised his shield and prepared to parry the spear blow. He was just an inch or two out. The spear found its way under the shield and into Mordred's side. When Arthur withdrew it, he could see sunlight on the horizon through the hole in his nephew. Mordred knew his wound was unsurvivable. With the very last of his strength, he swung his sword as hard as he had that day and hit King Arthur a terrible blow on the head. The sword went straight through the king's helm and sliced out a piece of his skull. The blow was Mordred's last act. The sword flew from his hand as it struck the king and Mordred dropped to the earth. He was dead before he hit the ground. So the final battle between Arthur and his traitor nephew was over. And who had won? Well, nobody. Mordred was dead and his rebellion was over, but Arthur was mortally wounded. The king would not recover to rule over his kingdom. It was as Sir Gawain had prophesied in Arthur's battle eve dream. Britain was orphaned. Bedivere struggled to his feet and Lucan did the same. Together they just managed to lift King Arthur and carry him from the battlefield. There was nobody else left to save. Everyone was dead. They managed to find three horses and they laid the king across the back of one. Then they mounted the others and made their way slowly away from the field, which was thick with blood and bodies. As they rode away, they could see the looters arrive. Before morning, every dead knight and lord had been stripped of his valuables. Lucan and Bedivere took the dying king to the Black Chapel, a small church near the sea, where a hermit said mass for them all. After the service, the two knights carried Arthur to a bed. The effort was too much for poor Sir Lucan. The wound in his side split open and more guts than was seemly spilled to the ground. Sir Bedivere wept at the death of his brother and asked the hermit to bury him there and then. The last remaining knight of the round table then sat tending to his king's wounds until Arthur woke up. Sire, Lucan's dead. It's just you and me now, old friend, replied Arthur weakly. Now you must do something for me. Take Excalibur, the finest sword in the world, and go up that hill in the distance. Nestled in a little valley, you will find a small lake. Go to the water's edge and throw the sword into it, as far as your remaining strength will allow. My lord, said Bedivere, puzzled, I'll do as you ask, but it seems a real shame. Arthur motioned for him to get on with it, and Bedivere left the room. An hour or two later he was back, minus sword. What did you see when you threw Excalibur into the lake? Uh, just wind, uh, waves and water. Traitor, rasped Arthur, you've lied to me. Go and do what I told you to do. 
It was true. Bedivere couldn't bear to throw Excalibur into the lake. It was such a very fine sword. He had hidden it and then lied about chucking it. He climbed the hill again, determined to do as he was told. Again, though, he couldn't quite bring himself to do it. He hid Excalibur even more carefully than he had the first time and went back to King Arthur. "'What did you see?' asked the king. "Um, uh, "'Just the water lapping uh, against the shore.' Right, I am really annoyed now. One last chance. Go and do as I have ordered. Again, Bedivere was gone an hour or two. When he returned for the third time, Arthur asked him what he had seen. This time he was satisfied with the answer. I held the sword into the lake as far as I was able. When it fell towards the water, a hand appeared from beneath the surface and then the rest of the arm up to the elbow. The hand caught Excalibur and then pulled the sword under and was gone. At last, this time you've obeyed me. I'm on the point of death, my friend, and you have just one more task to carry out. You must carry me to the same lake. There you will find a barge. Place me upon it. Bedivere struggled to lift the king onto his back, but he was determined and finally managed it. Then he staggered up the hill and into the valley to the waterside. True enough, there was a barge waiting there with many fine ladies on it. One of them was Morgan Le Fay. She leaned over her dying brother and touched his head. A strange tenderness appeared to come over her as she spoke to him enigmatically. Ah, dear brother, why have you stayed away from me for so long? The ladies began to row the boat away from the shore. There was no sound from the oars or the water as the boat moved silently away. Bedivere wept. When he'd lost sight of the barge, he turned away and mournfully descended the hill. He went and stayed with the hermit he knew for a couple of days before returning to the Black Chapel. As he approached, he saw a priest kneeling by a new grave. Sir, he asked, who's that you pray for so piously? I don't know, replied the churchman. Last night at midnight a host of ladies arrived with a man's corpse and told me to bury him. Bedivere stooped and joined the man in prayer. Alas, it was my lord, King Arthur. On the day after Bedivere saw King Arthur's tomb, Lancelot landed at Dover. He had made his way to Britain with his entire army, as fast as was humanly possible. He was about to march to Salisbury Plain when he was told the dreadful news. King Arthur was dead. Sir Lancelot of the Lake dropped to his knees and wept. Then, realising there was no need any more to rush anywhere, Lancelot slipped away and found the tomb of Sir Gawain. Silently he knelt before the tomb and prayed for the soul of his finest friend. He prayed that things could have been different. For two days and two nights, Lancelot remained at the tomb of the man he had loved more than any other. On the third day, Sir Lancelot of the Lake rejoined his comrades who had been waiting for him. He told them he needed to find Guinevere. They told him there was work still to do. Sir Mordred's two sons were marauding around the countryside, fomenting further revolt. Lancelot told them they could handle it. He was going in search of the Queen. Sir Lionel took some of the knights and men-at-arms and rode to meet Mordred's boys in battle. Brave Sir Lionel and his troops defeated the rebels easily. Hardly any men in his army were lost. He led them so well. One of the few men to fall was Sir Lionel himself. Lancelot's cousin was struck through the heart by a spear wielded by Melahan, Mordred's eldest son. His armour gave way and he plunged dead to the ground. Mordred's son lasted another five seconds or so before being cut down by Lionel's men who then mopped up the rest of the rebels. 
The revolt was put down, and there was no more fighting. Eventually, Sir Constantine, son of King Cador of Cornwall, was elected king, and he reigned over a peaceful land. Lancelot rode west for days after departing from Dover. At each night's lodgings along the way, he asked his hosts whether they knew where the Queen had gone. He learned that she was at a nunnery, somewhere in the west, but nobody could tell him where. On the eighth day, he paused at a nunnery. He thought the nuns might know where the Queen was in holy service. Fate was kind to Lancelot. Guinevere was there. She was brought before him. As soon as he saw her face, Lancelot knew there was to be no happy ending. He waited for her to speak. My ladies, she said to the nuns, because of this man and me, a great and terrible war has been caused. Because of us, King Arthur, Sir Gawain and many other fine knights have died. She turned to Lancelot. Go from here, we shouldn't see each other. Go overseas to your own kingdom and take a wife, live as you should have lived. Remember me and pray for me, but you will never see me again. I will never take a wife, sweet lady, I love only you. I will take the same path as you and serve God until he chooses to take me. But first, one last kiss. Guinevere, in charge of their relationship to the last, refused. Then, without another word, she turned and walked away. Lancelot broke. Utterly. He rode away weeping, having no idea where he was headed. He rode through the forests and over plains, never having the faintest idea where he was going, not caring whether he lived or died. Eventually, he stumbled across a chapel and a hermitage. Deciding that only God could help him now, he opened the door. Sir Bedivere reeled when he saw Lancelot. Then he welcomed the bravest of the knights in and gave him some wine. Over the next few hours he relayed the entire story of Gawain's death, Arthur's dream, the nearly truce and the great battle. Lancelot wept as he heard about Gawain's last hours, somewhat comforted by the thought that his breast friend had really forgiven him. He wept again when he learnt how King Arthur had been mortally wounded. He made up his mind he would remain in this house of God for the remainder of his life. He swapped his armour and knightly apparel for the simple habit of a monk. Over the coming months he was joined by members of his family. They'd all been out looking for him and one by one they found him. First Sir Bors arrived and he also began to wear the clothes of a monk. Then Sir Bloberis turned up and did the same. They were followed over the next few months by Sir Blamore and four others. For the next six years Lancelot and his seven companions served God as piously as any monk anywhere in the land. As the seventh year of their service began, Lancelot had a vision. In it he was told that Guinevere was dying and he must make sure she was buried next to her husband. Lancelot and his companions rode to the nunnery. When they got there, they were told the former queen had died half an hour before. Lancelot had come to terms with his loss many years before and he simply prayed for her. He was glad she'd finally been released from her torment. Then eight ex-knights took the queen's body to the chapel and buried her solemnly, with all the honour due to a queen, next to her husband. Only once it was done did Lancelot allow himself to cry. He didn't cry for himself and his lost love. He cried for Arthur, and for Guinevere, and for Britain, and the Round Table, and for the good times that were long in the past. He cried because his work was done. After that day, Lancelot did not eat and only drank a little. He told Sir Bors that he wanted to be buried at Joyous Guard and then lost himself in his sorrow and waited for death. After six weeks it came. Bedivere and the seven other former knights took their former comrade to his former home. 
There they gave him a fine funeral and laid him to rest. During the service, another knight arrived. Sir Hector de Maris had spent more than six years looking for his brother. Unlike the seven other knights, he hadn't been successful. Maybe it was as it should have been. Maybe he wasn't supposed to see his brother alive again. Maybe it was just bad luck. Either way, Hector knew immediately what was going on. Bors came over to comfort him and they listened to the service together. When it was done, Hector spoke. The others, the only men who had been members of the Fellowship of the Round Table who were still alive, listened. Lancelot, you were the best and the bravest. You were the most courteous knight who ever held a shield. You were the truest friend and the kindest fellow who ever drew a sword. You were the gentlest companion, but you were the sternest foe when you fought injustice. Most of all, you were the goodliest of all men. These words were the words of a brother. They may not have been entirely accurate, but they were appropriate. With the death of Sir Lancelot of the Lake, the time of the round table truly came to an end. As his soul ascended to join Sir Gawain in the heavens, the age of King Arthur passed and a new, less wonderful era arrived. Sir Bors, Sir Hector, Sir Bloberis and Sir Blamore left Britain never to return. All four travelled to the Holy Land to fight the Saracens and none came back. Sir Bedivere remained for the rest of his days at the chapel, every day praying for the soul of his king. Deep in the dark recesses of his mind was a tiny doubt. Was the body really that of King Arthur? Maybe the king had made a miraculous recovery. Just that small part of him wondered whether one day King Arthur would return to save Britain, just as he had come in the first place. Bedivere was not alone in hoping and praying that this might happen. From that day to this, it's been rumoured that maybe King Arthur lies sleeping, waiting until the day Britain needs him most. Maybe then he will come back to us, raise another fellowship of knights and begin another golden age. But then again, maybe he won't.